We're in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3 focuses primarily on Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, who you know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, what's interesting, it's in this chapter that they stop because they, they're no longer called Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and they start becoming Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I can't remember if I mentioned this already, but I have no idea why Daniel is continuously referred to as Daniel throughout the book, even though we're told that his name is Belteshazzar in the Babylonian language. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are more often referred to by that name than they are by their Jewish names. There's nothing in the text that seems to suggest that. Nobody really has a clear understanding of why. Um, the best guess is that in the first chapter where they were there, it was strongly a Jewish focus. And the second chapter was more of an Aramaic, the Babylonian focus. However, they, didn't, they weren't very prominent in that chapter. And now we are still in a Babylonian prominent focus, and they're the central figures, so that's the names that are being used. However, Daniel is in all these chapters, except for this one. He's in many Babylonian-focused chapters, and yet he continues to be called Daniel. And sometimes even Daniel, who has been renamed Belteshazzar, but still primarily Daniel. So it's not very clear why this name changed for them, but not for Daniel throughout the entire book. But it is what it is. The important question is, everybody has read this story, and the question is, where is Daniel? Where is Daniel in this story? It never once mentions Daniel was da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But it never specifically mentions that Daniel was not there. And so one could conclude that Daniel bowed down to the statue and that he didn't stand up and he didn't stay faithful with his um, friends and the narrator didn't mention him because that was a shameful thing for Daniel and he's bowing down and this story is about those who do not bow down. However, there's serious problems with this. First, the Bible has never, ever, ever been afraid about pointing out the faults of the people in the Bible. In fact, that is one of the main points of the Bible is for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Anytime there is a fault in any human, regardless of who they are, ethnically, status, gender, whatever, the Bible is always so quick to make sure that you know their faults and that that actually sticks out to you and they make that point. So the Bible has never been afraid to mention that. Specifically, when it comes to idolatry, the Bible really goes after them and goes for the throat, so to speak, like with Solomon, and really makes it clear that they messed up in that kind of way. So you can't argue that the Bible is choosing to redact history by leaving Daniel out because there is no evidence anywhere in any story of that being true. Second, Daniel's character doesn't allow for this. Now, I'm not saying that Daniel is incapable of bowing down to statues and idols because we're all capable of that. I'm not saying that there's no way he would ever do it because we can't say that of anybody. But the consistent narrative um, themes, the, the repetition, the consistency of his character that we see. So in chapter 1, he doesn't give in to the culture and he doesn't give in to the, the idolatry or whatever. In chapter 2, he clearly does not give in to the culture, and he does not compromise his beliefs in any kind of way. In chapter 4, he clearly does not give in and bow down or compromise his beliefs. 
Chapter 5, he doesn't compromise his beliefs. In chapter 6, where he's really put to the furnace, well, not the furnace, but he's really put to the grill, is he doesn't compromise. It is very, very, very unlikely that he does not compromise, does not compromise, then compromises, and then does not compromise, does not compromise, and does not compromise, without the Bible ever mentioning that inconsistency throughout it. And so the fact that his character continuously before and after demonstrates this um, allegiance to Yahweh above all other things, and nowhere is there any mention of his repentance or confession of failing or any kind of reason why he messed up, that totally points to the fact that he didn't bow down. And so these two evidences clearly emphasize and point to the fact that Daniel is not there. He is not there at all. It's not in his character, and it's not in the character of the Bible to leave that kind of stuff out. Now, where is he then? Don't know. Remember, the Bible's full of things of not telling us. <laughs> where did the sermon come from? Who did Cain marry? Who are all the people in his city? Like, what, what, was, David, what was Saul doing in the 15 years between like, being commanded to be king and then later when his son Jonathan attacked the sea? There's so many things the Bible leaves out because the Bible's not interested in giving us a complete historical account of the Israelites. It's interested in giving us a theological account of who God is. And so the Bible tells the stories that it deems beneficial to that theological message, not a complete history book. I mean, Luke said very clearly, if I were to write everything that Jesus just did in three and a half years, it would fill up all the books of the library. So we're clearly leaving things out, not because we're hiding things, but because there's not enough space and it doesn't fit the agenda. So where is he? Most likely as an advisor to the king, he could have been an ambassador. He could be somewhere else representing the king in some kind of a way. And this was not uncommon for advisors to travel around. I mean, the king's commanded a vast amount of territory. You saw the map of the territory that Nebuchadnezzar is in charge of. And Daniel has become his most trusted, most respected advisor. And so I can see Daniel being sent on many different errands or business trips to handle many things in a way that Nebuchadnezzar trusts him above all other things. He just doesn't happen to be there. So that's our best answer. But I really do strongly believe that Daniel is not there and that there is no bowing down because in all the books that I've studied, this does not fit the character of the Bible nor the character of Daniel for this just has been ignored because he actually did bow down. And so we are dealing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego specifically in this story. Chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar II had a golden statue made. It was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and he erected it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent out a summons to assemble the satraps, prefects, and governors, and counselors, and treasurers, and judges, and magistrates, and all the other authorities of the province to attend the dedication of the statue that he had erected. So the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other providential authorities assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. They were standing in front of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Now there's definitely a lot of repetition going on here. The first thing we're told that he builds a statue. It is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. It becomes a nine-storied building. This is not proportional. The proportions of the human body are 5-1 or 6-1, meaning 1-2 height. And this is 10-to-1. 
So this is like an extremely exaggerated Barbie doll. Okay, Barbies already are not proportional. But then imagine her being stretched out and even more. Like this does not fit. No human would do a 10 to 1 proportional statue or something. So a lot of scholars have kind of questioned that. However, we have discovered many stellies. Now, stelly is a stone tablet or a pillar that there's something carved into it, either the image of a god or the image of the king or even laws. So a really famous stelly that you might have learned about growing up in history class is the law code of Hammurabi or Hammurabi. Hammurabi made this law code. It's one of the most surviving. It's one of the oldest surviving law codes. It's completely intact, and it's on a stone pillar. The other stele that you all know about is the Ten Commandments. Those were all written on two steles. But it was not uncommon for them to carve images of beings on it. And it was not uncommon for, if you go to the Roman Empire and you Google, like you can Google this, or, I mean, you can't go to the Roman Empire, it's not there anymore. But if you go where the Roman Empire used to be, and archaeological digs, or you Google this stuff, you'll find these stone square pillars jutting up into the air, and then the bust of the emperor or whatever, or some famous figures on top of it. And it's all one stone. And these were markers. And so probably most likely, well, I know that was the country, it most likely is a stele where there's some stone pillar where there's some kind of um, message or inscription on it, and then the upper part of it is the statue of him, his body as a figure. So that's why the proportions are so off. Because think of it, even if you go to Washington, D.C., sometimes you'll see these round monuments jutting up in the air, and then there's a man riding a horse on the top of it, or there's a figure standing on top of it. And you, if you put the whole thing together, you're like, well, those proportions are odd. But we all can see it, and we're like, well, no, because the statue's on top. So that most likely is what is going on here. And so he erects a statue. Now notice that this statue is erected and multiple times it says he erected it meaning this is the really emphasis on what he's doing where did he get the idea for this statue it most likely came from the dream that he had the dream he had he was said to be the head of the statue and it was clearly foretold that he would be replaced by other kingdoms that would come after him and then he was like oh Yahweh is the greatest god da, 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 da. now he's obviously proving that he did not really mean that from his heart when he built an idol and demand everybody to worship you. He probably got that from the statue. And there's a really good chance that he is saying, no, 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 no. The dream is wrong. My kingdom will last forever. Because instead of having multiple parts to the statue's body, it's all one part. This statue is all gold. And it's all Babylon. And he's saying there will be no silver or bronze or iron that will come after me. I will live forever. Everybody knows he can't live forever, and even he knows he can't live forever. But what he would mean is, my kingdom will live forever. In the ancient world, you live forever through your descendants. As Americans, we're kind of disconnected from this idea of having ancestors and having descendants and creating legacies. Maybe that begins to change as you get older and you start thinking about your mortality and you have grandchildren, that kind of stuff. But legacies are everything in the ancient world and you live forever through your your children and we would call that genetics but they don't know what that is 
but through your legacy and the, the and they, they could obviously their children look they could obviously see their children look like them and this idea of their kingdom lasting forever so this is his way of saying god's wrong god's wrong and this statue is most likely celebrating him i mean that's kind of obvious but it's most likely celebrating his accomplishments his military victories and all that kind of stuff it's also interesting is we have found many statues like the one that's kind of described in the Babylonian archaeological digs. And most of these statues are the god Nabu. Now we kind of talked about this earlier that Nebuchadnezzar's name is after Nabu. And basically Nebuchadnezzar means may Nabu protect my boundaries or may Nabu write a good destiny for me. Nabu was the god of writing. Now in the ancient world you're not the god of writing as in like you're just a really good like storyteller. That's not what the god of writing means. The god of writing is the god of mysteries, the god of secrets, the god of destiny. They're the ones who write your destiny on the tablets. In the Babylonian accounts, there's this thing called the tablets of destiny. And whoever, whatever god controls the tablets of destiny, they control the destiny of the fate of all people. In the ancient world, humans did not believe in free choice or free will. They believe that God has determined everything. How old you were going to be, when you were going to die, whether you have victory, we got married. And all you could do was hope that they would write you a good destiny, make really good sacrifices to them that they would write a good one for you. But you were absolutely in the fate and at the mercy of the gods. And the idea of free choice doesn't really come about until much later in human history. It really starts rising up with the Greeks and people like Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey and this kind of stuff. But if you were here with us in mystery religions, I talked about how mystery religions and all that kind of stuff began to change the way people thought about this. Naboo is a god who writes your life out, writes your destiny. And there's a really good chance that by building a statue of Naboo and then merging himself with the statue, he's then claiming to not only be a god, but also trying to honor Naboo so Naboo would undo the prophecy of Yahweh. And Naboo would thwart Yahweh and write a destiny where his kingdom will last forever. Now for us that seems weird, but this is how they thought in the ancient world. But even as Americans we can kind of relate to this. Okay, when people are like, something is going to happen, like if you go do drugs or whatever, you're going to get in a car accident and kill people, or if you're drinking and driving, and they're like, not me, I'll show you, I'm different, right? Or like, if you ignore this and this and this, and your marriage is going to fall apart, whatever, that won't happen to me, I'll show you how I'm different. And we're notorious for also saying, I'll just find a good lawyer or a good doctor, or I'll get a good self-help book, and I'll prove all you wrong that I'm the exception to all these rules and the cause and effect of life. That's all he's doing. He's just doing it the same thing, thinking, but in a different way that fits his culture. We may go to lawyers and doctors and self-help books. He goes to Naboo. But it's his way of saying, I will show you, I will change history. And so there's an incredible amount of arrogance here. There's an incredible amount of arrogance. It's repeated these satraps and magistrates and judges, all these names, there doesn't seem to be any distinction between these titles. These titles seem to be, there be some overlap. The way they're used in other writings, um, the ancient world and that kind of stuff, there seems to be some overlapping. And that the narrator isn't going for very technical distinctions like governor, mayor, president, that kind of stuff. 
It's more interested in just saying kind of ruler, 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 ruler over and over again. But by using different words, it's repeating this without using the same word to emphasize the fact that everybody who was every, anybody was there. That's the main idea, that anybody who was anybody was there. And this is what's being communicated. In the beginning, you see this repeated twice, and it gives you this sense of grandeur and elegance and pomp and circumstances and that kind of stuff. And you're like, ooh, this is like the event of the century, like the Golden Globes or something that kind of stuff. And it's like, wow, I wish I could have been there. And all that power and all that wealth and prestige, and it probably was very glorious and beautiful. And that's the idea that's being communicated here. As he's erecting this statue, and he has this like football stadium, so to speak, where he and the statue is the halftime show, and he's going to have all these musicians that are going to come in, as he's going to mention. And it's this huge ceremony of kind of like an inauguration, except it's his deification. Now, it was very kind of, it was not common for Babylonian kings to declare themselves a god. That was not a very common thing. They, might, they were very often said they were the representative of the gods, or the gods were working through them, or even maybe the spirit of the god was in them. But not to just straight up call themselves a god in any kind of way. Yet, nobody has ever up to this point built an empire like Nebuchadnezzar. If you already believe that the gods have appointed you, you're already an emperor, and then you do what nobody has ever done before, very easily that you can go to Godhead very quickly in the way that you think. Because the idea of a king thinking that they're God in the ancient world is not uncommon, even though that's not uncommon for the Babylon that is uncommon for the Babylonians. So he has precedent in history to look at that. So verse four. Then the herald made a loud proclamation to you, O peoples, nations, and language groups. The following command is given. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zyre, the trigon, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, you must bow down and pay homage to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has erected. Whoever does not bow down and pay homage will immediately be thrown into the midst of the fiery furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when they all heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zyre, the trigon, the harp, the pipes, and all the kinds of music, and all the peoples and nations and language and groups began to blow, bowing down and paying homage to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. This is not the last time things are going to be repeated. So we've had all these officials repeated twice. We've had all these musical instruments repeated twice. And now we're going to see them repeated again in the next paragraph, in the next paragraph. And after a while, you're like, this is ridiculous, <laughs> like, Right? Like, come on, narrator, when paper's really precious and you could be telling us a lot more and you're choosing to waste space on this, like, I'd rather know other things like who did Cain marry? Like, come on, use the space for that. Or where is Daniel? Like, we didn't have time or space for Daniel, but we can repeat all this over and over again. And that's the whole point. The point is the narrator is now intentionally moving you into satire. By repeating these names over and over and over again, it starts feeling ridiculous. And it starts becoming a satire. And it starts becoming a political mockery of the empire and the kingship. And this is not uncommon. You will see this. When we get to the book of Esther, it's a giant satire against the Persian government. I mean, it just mocks it and mocks it and mocks it. And so think Monty Python's Flying Circus here, if you're familiar with that. Or Monty Python in Search of the Holy Grail. Flying Circus was a TV show. And it was just absolute absurdity and satire just ridiculousness to make fun and mock things and that's what the narrator's doing 
satire and mockery is not beneath God. So he's mocking this all for the reason. He wants you to understand how ridiculous this is. But not just that. This is like the ancient, version, ancient worlds of Pavlov's dogs. Remember that, for those who remember psychology class, Pavlov had this idea that he believed that he could condition you into certain behavioral reactions. And so he trained the bell ringing. And when the bell rang, the dogs came in and ate the food. And he kept doing this in training. Eventually, he could remove the food, and he ring the bell, and the dogs began to um, salivate for the food. And then they carried it even further and further and further. And so the idea is that they're creating a reaction. So without even thinking, they're reacting. The, most, the one I really like is they did this waiting room, and everybody in the waiting room was a part of the, the joke. And there was one person who was not. And the person came in, and every time this bell chimed over the loudspeakers, everybody in the room just sat up, stood up and then sat down. And the one person who was not in on it was like, what the heck is going on? And they did again. The bell ringed on the loudspeaker in the waiting room, the doctor's office, and they all stood up and sat back down. And the person's freaked out. After a while, you could tell the look on their face. They were starting to become very embarrassed and shamed that they didn't know what was going on and they weren't a part of it. And they felt left. It was just peer pressure. So the next time it rung, they kind of stood up with them awkwardly. And then they sat back down. And eventually they just start doing it without even thinking about it. They'd be reading their magazine or looking at their phone. They would stand up without even thinking about it. And then eventually, one by one, they begin to replace the people who were in on it. And they got called in. And then a new person came in that wasn't in on it. And they started joining in. And eventually they had an entire room of people who were not in on it, who were all just standing up and going down with the chiming of the bell and had no idea why. And that's exactly what's going on here. That's the scene that comes to my mind, is that except there's a threat of dying that really motivates you. But the idea is that the, the, when the music plays, they all just stand up. And when the music stops, they sit down. And the idea of all this repetition is to communicate this idea that this is groupthink mentality. There's just all these people, all this power, and they have all, right? These are supposed to be the wisest, most intelligent, most accomplished people who are running the empire, and they're just merely Pavlov's dogs for threat of death, just doing things without really even thinking about it. Why? To save their neck. And so the idea of the mockery here is most people in power don't really know more than you do. I mean, yes. Many of them probably got better grades and PhDs and that kind of stuff in certain ways. and They're really intelligent. You don't get to be that powerful without having some intelligence. But intelligence is not the issue. Most people in power do not have more wisdom than you do. And they don't seem to know any more what's going on. I mean, we're even right with COVID-19. How many times have we heard our leaders say, we don't understand this thing. We don't know how to deal with this. We're just reacting. And except for the fiery furnace, motivating you to stand up and do your thing, we have the fear of the people not re-electing you, motivating you. And so I respond this way because I think they won't re-elect me if I go the other way and vice versa. Now, I'm not saying nobody in government has good interests in mind and no Christian has any wisdom, but you know, overall, government just seems to be reacting to things. And how many times have you seen things like, well, what do the polls say? What do the polls say? Oh, if we make this decision, the polls won't be in our favor. But if we make this, a, and this is what government is and to a certain extent. Not completely, not all the way. I would never just label everything 100% something. There's always exceptions, and nothing goes that deep. 
But the idea is that this is the people who run the country and they're just merely reacting to things because of a fear of what will happen to them and yet lives are in the balance. Except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their wisdom will overrule their fear. Their wisdom will overrule their, overrule their fear. And so the king threatens to kill them. Fiery furnaces were a long-time question. I remember seeing things on National Geographic, or not National Geographic, sorry, the History Channel, and they were like, there's no way that Nebuchadnezzar could throw people away in a furnace and get away with this. Like, what the heck? There would be an outcry. Well, I know it's been a long time since we've been under a dictatorship or a monarchy as Americans, but if you study ancient history, that happens all the time. And in fact, an archaeological digging several years ago uncovered multiple fiery furnaces that were erected and used for actually punishing people and burning them. And it actually turns out to be that Nebuchadnezzar's one of his favorite hobbies was actually burning people and that kind of a punishment. And so this is not an unrealistic thing to do. They're creating this idea that all these people's lives are in balance. And here's the thing. Here's the problem. One of the main messages that this chapter is communicating is that when governments or men or women begin to deify themselves, either they literally believe that they are a god or they begin to act as if they are a god who is above you or is beyond you and they have the right to do what they want because they are they. When they begin to deify themselves, the sanctity of human life becomes nothing. When you begin to self-deify yourself, then the way that you view life below you is frivolous. It doesn't mean the same thing to you. Everybody is just an experiment and a petri dish or a pawn to be moved on the, the chessboard. And Nebuchadnezzar has come to the point where he has accomplished so much and done so much that he has self-deified himself. And he is now willing to just grab anybody and anyone and just throw them in the fire furnace without really thinking about what this does to people, what this does to the people that you're ruling over, what this will do to your economy, what this will do to the stability of your country. If you just start grabbing people and throwing them in the furnace, the economies collapse and the stability of governments can fall and eventually unrest begins to rise. And this is all he can think about is himself. All he can think about is his own deity. And all these people are just going in line with it. And they're willing to stand by and watch other people go into the furnace because as long as they're safe. And this, you can see this, like, rather than stepping in and rescue somebody who's getting beat up, we just pull ourselves, not we, us in this room, hopefully not, but we as a culture pull our cell phones out and start videotaping. We're afraid to step in because of what will happen to us. And life no longer is sacred. When you deify yourself, life is no longer sacred. And when you buy into the fear of what they can do to your life, if you don't go along with it, then life no longer becomes sacred to you. And then you become used to watching people being oppressed and trampled, and it no longer bothers you. And this is the danger of governments having power, lots of power. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are willing to stand up against this self-deification and they're willing to exercise their wisdom and they're willing to override their fear for what is right, trusting that God will take care of them. And this is what we see in this book. 
Now, believe me, it is a scary thing. Okay, there, I'm not going to get really political here, but there are some things that are happening in this country that are very unsettling to me. And the direction that we're going, and the minority that seem to have power, and they're pushing us in very unbiblical directions. And they are pushing us into very self-destructive family directions and all this kind of stuff. And there's this fear that if we stand up and speak out, which is you're hearing all the time on the news and YouTube videos and this kind of stuff, if you speak out, what do they do? They immediately call you Nazis. They shame you. They try to destroy your reputation. They run you through the media and everything that is you and your family, especially having three little girls. Do I really want to be thrown out in the media and have my three little girls dragged behind me with me into this media and something that they can't announce their life for the rest of their life? And there's this fear. And the challenging thing to me is, and I don't, I mean, I know my emotions and I know the right thing to do, is that when the culture comes knocking on the door and the threat of being destroyed versus exercising wisdom and trusting in God to do the right thing comes, the Bible is challenging us to trust God. And they might drag me and my family through the dirt, so to speak. And it might be a horrific thing that happens to my girls. But do I trust God is good? I mean, Christians all throughout human history have not been spared from horrible fates. And yet they have seen that God is greater than that fate. And this is the question that we ask ourselves on a very micro level, speaking out and just being um, publicly shamed, or to a future or other country level of actually being executed. And Daniel is challenging us to trust in God and exercise wisdom rather than allowing fear rule us and we become Pavlov's dogs and life no longer is sacred. And yes, we're maybe not there yet, but we could be. I hope to God that we won't and the revival will come. But it didn't take Hitler but five years to turn an entire country towards a wrong direction. This is the warning. The warning is hopefully that a day like this will not come. But if it does, this is the model. This is the model for us. And that's for me too. Because I would like to say that I would react in the right way through wisdom. But I also have fears and three little girls and I don't know what I will ultimately do. And none of us do until that moment comes. But this is the challenge that God is holding us to. And so this is the threat that he's throwing them into. 